1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Alright, this is CBS Eye on Veterans and I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com and this week we're talking to an Army veteran a radio broadcaster, a sports betting analyst and host of Hazard Ground one of the most popular military podcasts in America Army Reserve Colonel Mark Zeno. Now Hazard Ground features in-depth interviews with vets Some guests are recognizable from TV and books you may have heard of and others are names you've never heard of But each week, they share stories of combat, service, and lessons that we all could use in our life. And you'll be entertained by the quick wit and punchiness of native New Yorker and Hazard Ground podcast host, Mark Zeno. Mark, what's good, my brother?
3: Uh, Phil, it's great to be with you. A huge fan of Connecting Vets. You and Jack Murphy, you guys do an amazing job uh, over there in just telling some great stories and keeping people abreast of what's going on. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's this huge, there's still, after all these years. Still this civil-military divide um, that people don't understand about who we are, what we do, how we're made, uh, what has happened to us, and how we're trying to go forward. And and what you guys do out there is so super important to continue to tell these stories. And as many outlets as there are, like yours, like the Hazard Ground, like your podcast, you know, still – We're still only speaking to the same audience. That's the problem. There's not enough civilians listening to our shows and reading our articles and everything else. It's all the military folks who are focused on us. And we're still not bridging that gap as best we should.
2: Now, bridging that gap is done with powerful storytelling, which is why I'm glad Mark shared with us his most life changing story from his deployments.
3: But so they had sent me over there to to uh, to take care of this log unit. I had an infantry platoon. I had a platoon of MPs and then a log platoon and. We were doing all these different missions for what turned out to be CJ Sothef, Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. They had tabbed me to to stand up and build the Iraqi Special Operations Forces Support Battalion. Essentially, the mission was, you know, was was to build and stand up the support battalion. I mean, I I got there. I started with like 27 Iraqis and a whole bunch of broken AK-47s. And I had to build out this entire unit, assigned every piece of equipment, put every single body in a slot and everything else and put all this together. And then the job was to actually fill it with vehicles, weapons, gear, everything else. And then it was to train them on top of it to be able to to run their own missions and be able to conduct their own combat convoys. And so what it ended up being was me and two 11 Bravos. Uh, one of them was from my unit. Another one was from the, the California unit who I had tabbed uh, to help me out. And it was the three of us. And we basically worked side by side with an entire Iraqi battalion. And train them on everything from basic infantry tactics, convoy operations, react to contact, you know, all these drills, all these same drills that we had to learn uh, over the course of a, a year plus. And, you know, when it was all said and done, I mean, this was a this was a unit that um, that could run their own missions by themselves all over Baghdad. And so while I was training the Iraqis every day, I was also running log convoys uh and and log packs for the Americans. So I I had probably I was running, you know, convoys outside the wire probably four to five days a week over the course of a year. I mean I probably logged, I would guess between five and six thousand miles on the roads of Iraq during the heaviest IED period of the entire war. What's the famed road route Irish, right? Route Irish or Route Tampa, yeah, one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Route Irish is like I ninety five. It goes all the way from the bottom of Iraq all the way to the top of Iraq, straight through. But the
2: videos from that era, you see this I-95 type highway and just every, I mean, you look closely, every inch of the walls has pockmarks from bullets or uh, residue from explosions, parts of the roads gone in areas. I mean, when you were driving up and down that, it was the deadliest road in the world. And then your secondary duty to train Iraqi special forces so that they can go outside the wire and go find the bad guys. Um, Whew.
3: Wow. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I guess I did a good job because, uh, eight days before I left the country, uh, I was on a convoy with only Iraqis and they saved my life. So wow. yeah, uh, we had gotten hit with an IED and, and, uh, funny story. So they, they had asked me uh, to go pick up a New York Times reporter, uh, in the green zone, which if you know where Baghdad International Airport is in the green zone, it's probably a four or five mile straight line shot. You know, once you get out past the the Iraqi airport, past the, the old flying man, for those who know the reference, um, it's a straight shot right to the green zone. So they had asked me to go pick up this New York Times reporter. And my 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 SF boss says to me, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if you just took all your Iraqis and you guys did the mission? You know, you being the only American on it. And I'm like, really? OK, sure. Why? Why not? And I was like so laser focused on getting the hell out of there because I was leaving in a week. And um, they wanted to put on this show because we constantly in, in the soft world, they constantly had VIPs and media coming in. Because remember, back then, that was the ticket for the Americans out of there was that if we could provide if the Iraqis could provide their own security and everything else, we were going to be able to leave. So everything that they were doing was constantly showcased on the news because these were the best fighters in Iraq. And so it was nonstop media coming in and out. And I had said yes. And I was pissed about the short notice of the whole thing. And I did. I failed every pre-check that a leader should fail. Every pre-check there was, didn't check the vehicles, didn't bring a map, didn't bring a compass, didn't bring comms, didn't bring my interpreter, just got in the vehicles and left. I had failed every leader check mark there was because I had made the trip easily 50 times. I knew the I could have done the trip with my eyes closed. But lesson to all the young leaders out there listening, don't ever skip those steps. Because lo and behold, what happens is we get there, fine. We pick up the reporter on the way out. The gate that I would normally come out of was blocked and, and closed off. And they weren't letting it out because the roads were dangerous. And so at this point in time, by the way, like I could speak broken Arabic, right? Like I had been in country long enough that I could communicate with, which is why I didn't take my interpreter. I could communicate enough to understand most of what they were saying. And so I had talked to them and I said, can you guys get us out of here? Do you know how to get You know how to get back home? And they're like, yes, yes, we do, we do. So I'm like, screw it, let's go. Again, bad, bad leader check. Probably should have called back to base and, you know, checked a couple of things and every, maybe checked the road here and there, this, that, and the other. Nope, failed again. Because, again, you know, wise guy from New York thinks he knows everything. So we leave, and then you could tell I'm sitting in the back seat next to this New York Times reporter, and these two guys in the front seat are screaming at each other in Arabic. And I'm totally trying to play it off like nothing's going on, right? And I'm just like, hey, hey, you like the New York Times? What's it like, right? Yeah, you've been here before? Come here often? You know, just trying to play it off. And I can tell that they have no idea where they are. They have no idea where they are. They're screaming at each other in different directions. And I'm trying to, you know, just play it all off all cool and everything. So we're driving around aimlessly for about 10 minutes. Right. And then all of a sudden, like I can orient myself. I see a couple of, you know, statures and structures that I know. I'm like, okay, I know where we are. Tap them on the shoulder. I'm like, go this way, go that way. We know where we're going. And they pick it up. And then lo and behold, we get right back on Brad Irish. And then we come under an overpass and as we come under an overpass, boom, IED goes off, lifts up the whole entire vehicle, slams it back down, vehicles disabled. And I had two other vehicles with me. They were full of Iraqi soldiers, all of them. And I'm always the lead vehicle. I always just felt comfortable there. It's always where I wanted to be. I, I always felt the best command and control was from the lead vehicle, so I was always in front. And my logic was if anybody was going to get hit first, I wanted it to be my vehicle, nobody else's, right? I wanted them to hit my vehicle first um, and not not my guys. And so they hit our vehicle, and literally, um, I didn't see it, but I heard it. There were three guys on the side of the road, locked and loaded with RPGs. As soon as the vehicle came to a stop, they were ready to unload. Vehicle behind me, the, the Iraqi gunner, took out all three of them. Whoa. Those are the guys I trained. Those Ooh. are the guys I trained and they saved my life.
2: Mad respect for everybody that had to do that, that worked in logistics, that did those convoys. I mean, because at the height of the fighting, you had to just be, you know, nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs every time you came up to one of those bridge elements because you knew at the top could be somebody waiting to take you out.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, I joke around that, you know, I saw more combat at that point in time than seventy-five percent of the infantry did because they were all guarding gates and guarding prisons. You know that was their that was their main function. That they they never actually got out on the roads and got to patrol all that much and do all that stuff. I I was just very. I I've said this a million times. If you said to me, Mark, hey, I'm going to lay out every single captain assignment in Iraq for you. Pick one. I couldn't have picked a better one on my own. I just got lucky. I got very very lucky. Yeah. I got put in an environment where my personality and my, the way I operate was really allowed to flourish because, you know, in the SF community, no one is going to stop you and tell you you're doing it wrong. They're just going to continue to move around you. And the only way that I knew that I was doing a good job is because they kept giving me more work. It was, here's what I need you to do, and then go figure it out. Now, look, if you had a question, they would answer it. But for the most part, they left me the autonomy to do what I needed to do.
2: Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and today we're talking with Mark Zeno, an Army veteran turned radio sportscaster and host of the incredibly popular veteran podcast, Hazard Ground. Each week, he interviews military vets whose stories of combat, tragedy, and triumph will leave you spellbound. But today, we'll hear the story of the man behind the mic. Mark shared how an Iraq deployment as a logistics officer turned into working alongside special operations, something that was perfectly suited for the personality of this native New Yorker.
3: There's no babysitting. I operated best in that environment. So, you know, I was really allowed to flourish. And because I was allowed to flourish there, you know, I gained the respect of these guys, of these Green Berets, of the, of the most elite, you know, fighters in the world, to the point where they would take me out on missions. They're like, hey, do you want to, we want to pull security on this mission, this raid we're going on tonight? I'm like, yeah. yeah. Yes. Like, okay, I'll go. Why not? What do I do? Don't get shot. Okay, that sounds good. Simple enough. Got it noted. So if you see any bad guys, shoot them. All right, I can handle that. Like you know. So I was just so fortunate to have that experience, Um, and and it shaped me as an individual, but it shaped me as an officer and a leader for the rest of my career. To the point where you know, I talked that that cocky, you know, sharp-tongued guy sort of died uh, and went away, and and he. Well, I shouldn't say that. He grew up, right? Like he realized that leadership is a craft, and that it's important to invest in people and that you know uh you you can take care of people and do the job at the same time you 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 can put people first and still accomplish the mission
2: and as evidenced by that one situation that one anecdote you just shared about rude irish the attack from high the ied and your number 2 vehicle in the convoy had your six they immediately took to fire and took out the guys on the bridge and these were Iraqis. So you must've been that. And you they know, how me. great is that? I
3: tell you, when I left, they threw me a huge party. They gave me a shake outfit. They've showered me with a like the. I have a box full of random crap that I would never actually <laughs> ever wear. So cheap gold watch. I mean, they bought me, those dudes love me. They were sad when I left. I was sad to leave them. I mean, you know, yeah. when your life's on the line every day with these guys, you know, and, and, uh, you can relate to them again. Talk about relating to people who don't speak the language you speak, and they still want to go to war for you, and they still want to be be by your side every day. That means they love you. You know, they genuinely love you. And and it was it was a it was an emotional moment, or a lot of hugs. You know, the night before I left, and then there were a lot of drinks. Which shh, don't tell anybody.
2: So you're talking to a Navy veteran. I mean, if that wasn't part of it, it wasn't a party.
3: Oh, we, um, stuck. <laughs> we stuck out.
2: I mean, the Baghdad Country Club, still one of my favorite stories I've ever heard about inside the green hey, hey, zone, you, you the, uh, the Brit that made the bar.
3: Swear to God, I almost missed a flight. I was so banged up the next morning. My sergeant had to drag me out and carry my gear. We got to buy app. I literally got out of the car and threw up right on the spot. I was I was done. I was so done. I remember taking the flight to Kuwait. I remember taking my Kevlar off and just having my face buried in it, thinking I was going to vomit in my helmet the entire flight. So banged up.
2: That's the way to win the enlisted man's heart. I
3: love it. So, yeah, they literally (laughs) had to carry me there. It was, it was, that's
2: that's good stuff. Hey, can I ask? I wasn't going to ask this, but since we've kind of gone here, um, can you give me any insight as to why the Afghani situation, why they were so. Quick to be taken over by the Taliban. Whereas when I look at Baghdad today and I look at parts of Iraq, I see thriving people that do crave their independence and enjoy their towns and do not seem to be under the thumb of an oppressive regime like the Taliban. What was the difference you think between the special operators on the Iraqi side you were training and those, you know, on the Afghan side? Is there a cultural difference? I guess I just can't put my finger on why one went no, so well he, and why one went so bad.
3: The biggest difference is geography. I mean, look, you actually have cities and electricity and power and indoor plumbing in Iraq in major cities. There are parts of Iraq that are, you know, farmland and out in desert and everything else. But for the most part, the metropolises, even the smaller cities, have infrastructure. The, the terrain in Afghanistan is so treacherous. You could have two villagers who live a straight line distance of a mile that you can walk in 10 minutes and they'll never see each other their entire lives. Because in between that mile is a jagged rock mountain that you can't traverse. Like literally, that is the difference. The difference is the terrain. It is so impenetrable at times, which is why Afghanistan has never really been conquered for 2000 years, because the terrain is so treacherous. It's hard to traverse. It's, it's hard to move. You know, yeah, you have some bigger areas, Kandahar, you know, things of that nature. But, you know, in the Pesh Valley, I mean, yeah, you're at the bottom of the valley. Everything else around the bottom of that valley down there, guess what? You ain't getting anywhere else in Peshawar without one hell of a trek. You better have three or four days of food on your back and you're, you're walking. It's a, There are no roads. There's not, there's no, there's no you, know, you can drive through the mountains of the Appalachians. They've put cuts in there have made roads to get through it. Like that's American, you know, Western uh, civilization and the industrial complex that have allowed us to do that. They ain't doing that in Afghanistan. You have to walk no. over that mountain or around it. And nobody wants to do that. Not when you're trying to find food and and, some, and keep your family alive.
2: That's the most interesting perspective I think I've heard, because if you're not able to connect With commerce, you're not able to connect with roads. If you're not able to connect that way, your cultures don't expand and grow. And so that's why they're so, I'm going to stick with my village and I'm going to try to kill the people in that village because I just don't like them. The topography has made them develop and evolve into tribal, secular, independent cells, unlike a major metropolis where we all blend.
3: You talk to people, especially special ops guys who have had to work on those mountains they will tell you that that is a major major difference
2: and that appears to be reflected in the name of the podcast hazard ground when we think about the hazardous ground where the war fighting has gone on for 20 years tell me more about how the podcast got its name
3: the genesis of it was from one story that i i did not know existed uh and and so I, I I think I mentioned this earlier that, like, when I would come into my armory, I would, they would have all these paintings on the wall of, like, National Guard history, right? And one of them I, I just kept gravitating towards was the Battle of Gar, on the top of a mountain in Afghanistan in March of 2002, Roberts Ridge, as it might be more popularly known, uh, where yeah. Roberts was the first Navy SEAL killed in action. He fell out of the back of a, of a helicopter on the, the mountain of Gar. They send a team of rangers up to the mountaintop to go get them. And the problem is is you have two main things. One, it's the middle of March or beginning of March, and the mountain is covered with snow and ice. That's number one. Two, the elevation is nearly impossible, that choppers aren't supposed to be that high to get up there. And then two, trying to walk up the side of the mountain was nearly impossible. So these rangers get inserted on top to go find them. There's 19 rangers up there led by Nate Self, Captain Nate Self, who is an Army Ranger. And as soon as they land, the back door opens, boom, they start getting shot at. Long story short, they're on the top of this mountain for close to 20 straight hours in combat. They're they're dead. They're bleeding. They're dying. They're trying to keep themselves alive. They made two attempts to insert more people on top of the mountain. Both of them failed. They refused to send a third one up there. Then Rangers decided to start climbing the mountaintop. It took them, which was about a two mile distance from bottom to top, about eight and a half to nine hours to get up the side of that. Now it's like the modern day Black Hawk Down, where they're in combat for twenty straight hours. They're completely outnumbered, completely outmanned. They have no food, no support, barely any water, running out of ammo, and nobody ever told this story publicly. And I'm like sitting here going, "Why is this not a movie? Why doesn't the world know that this story exists?" Because they need to be. With all deference to Lone Survivor and American Sniper, and all you know, there were books that were made into movies. That's why people know those stories. Why does anybody know the battle attacker guard? Because they should. And yes, it, there are books out there about it, but it's not like it was a major motion picture and it should be. But I say all that to say, you know, those guys who live through that will tell you that terrain in Afghanistan is the ultimate equalizing factor to everything in combat.
2: And is that where the name hazard ground comes from them?
3: Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, it was, I was searching for names. Like, you know, I was, I was looking for something that sort of denoted you know, that we were we, – it was a place of, of treachery. Everything on the ground is stable. The ground is the flat piece where we all hope to land. Uh, and so somewhere between the hazard that that all of us that are still telling these stories are on the same level ground together. So we, we've we sort of traversed the hazard ground uh, as best we can, right? And it's something I tell all – a lot of the guests that we get on, they're like, well, I don't know. I don't think I have a story like any of these people do. I say it's not, it's not about better or worse. It's not about – it's your story in your words. And, and I want you to share it because yeah. your story has value. And inevitably what will happen is it doesn't matter whether it's a specialist or a three-star general. Somebody will email us. Somebody will hit us up with a comment and say, that person said exactly what I was thinking. Right? There's, there, there's some dad there who, who I interviewed or, or some mom who's got a seven-year-old child. Was one day going to ask and say, What did you do in the war? And they can go, Listen to this episode of the Hazard Ground, and then come ask me questions.
2: And we're back at CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy Vet Phil Briggs, and we've been talking with Army veteran and reserve officer Mark Zinno. He went from the Army to being a sports broadcaster in Baltimore, then in the Atlanta area. And he's also a favorite guest of sports shows across the country as a sports betting analyst. But in the military veteran community, he's known for hosting one of the most popular podcasts, Hazard Ground. His conversations with his fellow warfighters bring us right onto the battlefield and also gives us some of the mental medicine we need to overcome all kinds of adversity. But as the host, we don't always hear a lot about the life of Mark Zinno, which is why I was eager to ask him about life before the Army And the highly athletic and interesting thing he did while attending college at loyola university let's stick the landing here with uh just a couple fun facts you did something in college athletically that i don't think a lot of people know and tell me about cheerleading
3: i was a uh i was on the cheerleading team in college and i actually cheered in the nfl with the baltimore ravens uh, on part as, as part of their stunt team for seven years so Coincidentally, there were a lot of ROTC guys on the cheerleading team when I was in college. So, it kind of, I was doing ROTC at the same time. So, I just made a close group of friends. But I had been asked, uh, you know, to do it um, in high school, and I said no. Then I remember at my freshman orientation in college, uh, the cheerleaders did like a little demo, and I went up to one of them and talked to him and asked him what it was about. And then, lo and behold, uh, like a day or two later, uh, there was a girl who lived on my floor. And she knocked on my door and said, you're interested in shielding, right? I'm like, no. And she's like, yes, you are. You Come with me. And she was gorgeous. So I'm like, okay. I'm an 18-year-old guy just following a girl around like a lost puppy. Uh, she took me to practice, and then I walked in, and then there were 19 other gorgeous girls who thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm like, okay, I'll stay. You know, hormones. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> so, uh, That's
2: awesome. Did you have a gymnastics uh, background? Because I no. saw you played baseball, football, lacrosse, that, baseball,
3: that kind of football, stuff. football, hockey. I mean, you know, I, I played every – Main sport there was growing up, I had no no background in it whatsoever, and I just found something in college that i that I enjoyed and you know the physical challenge of it and and learning something new and being around a lot of good friends and you know you build a, you build a lot of camaraderie and then look you know i mean as it relates to the military it just it's you know without being too quirky, but the amount of trust that someone has to have in you to hold them above their head or catch them if they 're falling is pretty paramount you know these people are putting their their sort of physical well being in your hands and that's something that I was prepared for in combat as well, you know, like here, take these things, take care of them and bring them back to me. It's just, it was an amazing run. It was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. Here's a funny story. Before I had actually deployed for the first time in 2003, the Ravens Chiodas had gone on a USO tour and I had gone to, I had gone with them on the USO tour and we had performed, um, in, uh, in, in Baghdad in 2003 and, and we had went to, At the time, I didn't know it. We had went to the special operations compound uh, and hung out with the folks there and everything else. When I had deployed to Iraq and I had landed there, in the operations center, they had my cheerleading picture up on the wall. When I walked into the room, they knew exactly who I was. I got my balls broken nonstop for being being a cheerleader, as, as you should have. I mean, it comes with the territory, but yeah. So I had literally deployed to the place that I had visited as a member of the Ravens cheerleading team on a USO tour.
2: Oh God, what I had loved been your Eve for been been like, hey, hey, LT, LT, this this looked just like you. You gotta
3: wait, that is you.
2: Wait, those pants are tight, Lieutenant. what you do?
3: So yeah, I mean That's awesome.
2: but you had the last laugh in a way though, and not to be cheeky about this, because I have a daughter now, um, in middle school. She's a you know, she's done a gymnastics and she's done a cheerleading, and she's a flyer and she's way up top, and I mean that drop from the top is easily, you know, 15 feet or more. Um, And these are just like middle school girls. You get into the high school and the collegiate level and the pro level. I mean, they're doing some really, really cool stuff. Did you ever come close to dropping or having a fall or anything? Because I know that that can, again, get sort of dicey. You get somebody 15 feet in the air and she weighs 120 pounds coming down with the speed of gravity. That's got to
3: hurt. Even Olympic gymnasts don't always stick to landing every time you do it. Like, you know, just it happens. You're doing enough times you're going to have – But, you know, nobody's ever like been sent to the hospital on my watch. Like everybody, nobody's ever got a concussion. I mean, heck, I've, I've been knocked out, fat lips, bloody noses, kicked in the junk, uh, which is always the, the negative downside of, uh, you know, being a a male cheerleader is that when a foot scrapes you on the way up right between the, you know, what's a, um, I, I have kids, so I think everything was fine. So, you know, um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's all part (laughs) of it, you know, um, but the camaraderie is, is, uh, is, is the best part of it.
2: Last question about that. And again, we've skipped around. You went from college cheerleading to actually doing it for the Baltimore Ravens on the field in the NFL. And uh, I got to know, man, what was that like on the field? Some of the rivalry games you probably had. Uh, I'm thinking Steelers-Ravens playoff season. You guys are out there. Do you feel the bump bumps in your chest when the crowd just screams?
3: I'll tell you what what the best feeling was. Uh, and this this was, a, a, for lack of a better term, an honor that I was bestowed upon, especially after 9-11. I was still cheering for the Ravens. We used to run Ravens flags out of the tunnel. Uh, right after 9-11, they decided they were going to run an American flag out first in front of all of them. And they asked me to do it as the one person who was in the military to run the American flag out. And I got to do that for every single home game. And so, you know, you want to talk about an adrenaline rush. Like, you know, they have the music playing low and then we're leading the team out on the field. And that's when the, the, the crowd goes nuts. And so I'd be sitting there at the front of the tunnel and it's almost like, hold up, hold up, hold up. And then finally they give you the go and you lift that flag up and you dart out of the tunnel running full speed. I mean, like a bat out of hell right out of that tunnel and watch the entire 70,000 people stand up and go nuts. You know, that was that was an awesome, awesome, fun experience. I never, never once um, took it for granted that I was I was bestowed that honor to run to the center of the field and wave the American flag.
2: So cool. I mean, the power of the wave of that many people cheering at once. Just uh, wow. All right. uh, Broadcasting. uh, We could get into this and we'll have to do another interview another time. But I know you do broadcasting. You do sports bet broadcasting as well. An analyst on sports betting. It's 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 huge. You can't go a minute without seeing a DraftKings commercial or, you know, one of the brands out there. Share with me a little bit about what that's like.
3: I mean, look, uh, I, I joke around and I say uh, 20 years of being an Italian degenerate growing up in New York finally paid off. It got me a job, right? Um, so <laughs> that's kind of what it boils down to. Look, I've, I've always been around sports betting my entire life. You know, I mean, my dad my uncle had me in football pools at 18 years old. You know, I, I can remember being a kid on the bus. I, I, I think only people in New York and New Jersey remember this, the, the little betting slips that used to come out, that used to circle the numbers on, hand the guy 20 bucks or five bucks or whatever it is and make your picks um yeah there's they had these things back in the day called a bookie before the internet got involved um but yeah it's always something i've had a passion for always something i've done and 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 now at the age of sports betting becoming legalized in more and more places across the country there's just such a need for it it's something that i think i get to put the analytic part of my brain and the diligence and the research and everything that i love to to put together the best angle or the best way to approach a game or and and looking at it that way and it's been a great, great experience. You know, I've had a fortunate uh, pleasure to work for three or four different national networks uh, as a sports betting analyst and, and a sports handicapper and the sky's the limit. Now, I, I think that, you know, it's where I'm going to stay. Mostly don't get me wrong. Like I love doing local radio and I still love doing a radio show. It's a lot of fun, um, hot takes and everything, you know, just to being able to do that. I did that for 15 years. The problem is the radio industry itself became so volatile um, given the way, you know, where things go that I found more stability in sports betting. And so I, I've just kind of put my eggs in that basket. Sports betting is, is what's buttering my bread right now. It's what's paying my bills. So uh, please make a wager. Watch my content on all my social media sites. Uh, let me Let me know that you love it. <laughs> It's a
2: cool world. It's got to be fun to talk about that each and every week. And like weather, you don't always have to be right. The weatherman doesn't have to be right. The sports guy doesn't really have to be right.
3: The difference is that the weatherman is wrong. It doesn't cost anybody money. If I'm wrong and somebody follows me, it costs them money. That's the difference. So, yeah. Uh, I, I I need to be right more than the weatherman. That's for sure. Okay.
2: Hey, uh, let, let's end with this. How do I find you? How do people see you? Again, we're talking with Mark Zeno, host of the Hazard Ground podcast, a podcast you must listen to because the guests are amazing. But where do I get more of you and find more of you?
3: Uh, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Zeno M-A-R-K-Z-I-N-N-O. You'll get uh, everything from me there and probably a whole lot of stuff you don't want. As far as the Hazard Ground, we have a website, hazardground.com. All of our episodes are on there, but subscribe to the Hazard Ground YouTube channel as well. Just at youtube.com backslash c backslash hazard ground if you just google search hazard ground youtube you'll you'll get there subscribe there um and you can watch all of our episodes there as well and see the guests face to face if that's more of your thing anywhere you get podcasts uh, just search for hazard ground
2: rock and roll man great episodes they'll feel like medicine every time you listen great stories being told on the hazard ground podcast army veteran broadcaster and cheerleader mark (laughs) Zeno. damn good to know you man thank you so much for coming on the show
3: Phil. Thanks for being here.
2: And we'll be back with more inspiring stories from great military veterans when CBS ION Veterans returns.
0: Hey, Prime members. You can listen to ION Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com
1: slash survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast